doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to the first episode of the Major Pain Podcast. My name is Jesse Mercury, and on this show, I'll be sitting down with people who experience chronic health conditions so they can tell me what it's like to live with. And I'm one of those people, and that's what we're going to do in this first episode today. I'm going to tell you about my chronic health condition and how it affects my life. So my goal with this show is to shine a light on something that is usually hidden in darkness. I have experienced this so many times in my life where I try to talk to someone about what it's like to live with what I'm going through, and I can just see them, their eyes glaze over. It's like they just don't want to hear it or they're having some sort of a fear reaction like this this guy's young and healthy looking and if this can happen to him it can happen to me and um it's it's just something that i've become trained to not talk about in society and i want to try to break that down a little bit and i also just want to hear from other people what they're going through because i'm sick of feeling like i'm going through this alone and there's so many people out in the world who live with chronic health conditions, who live with some sort of major pain in their life that they feel like they can't talk about or it limits them or it keeps them in a box. And I just want us all to break out of that and to come together and learn empathy and to share stories and to hear each other. So in this first episode, I want to share my story. Um, normally on this podcast, I'm going to be interviewing people about their chronic health conditions, but I can't interview myself. So I've asked my amazing girlfriend, Andy Alhadif, to join us today and to lead this first episode so that I can share my story. So Andy, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for having me, Jesse Mercury. I'm, <laughs> I'm so thrilled to be here in the basement of my own home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's actually my absolute pleasure, um, you know, as a partner of somebody who has a major chronic health condition, it's also really hard to find community around that, especially yeah. as a young person. Um, and I, I think another goal that I'm personally really excited about in the mission of this podcast is, is to form a community and share, yeah, some things that feel really private um, that happen and are unseen by so many, but I believe are actually very understood by a lot of people. And we're all secretly struggling with these things um, when we could be joining together and, and talking about it. Yeah. And it is going to be challenging and it is going to be um, illuminating and I'm excited to be part of it. So, Jesse, are you ready? I'm are ready. you ready for your interview? I'm ready. Hit me. <laughs> All right. Well, first, um, I would really like you to just sort of talk about who you are as, as a human being outside of your major pain. Yeah. Let's just get to know you. Yeah. So uh, I'm a bit of a weirdo. Um, <laughs> I'm a content creator, performer. I am, I like to call myself a sci fi synth pop artist. I make science fiction themed synth pop music. Um, which I'm very, very proud of. <laughs> I've loved science fiction my whole life. I actually spent five years podcasting about science fiction. Um, I'm a huge nerd. We're sitting here under my Star Trek posters. <laughs> um, lifelong Star Trek nerd, but I also love Star Wars and so much other science fiction. I grew up in San Diego. I now live in Seattle. I've been here for about 10 years. Um, I used to work as a leasing agent until my health got to a point where I was no longer able to work. And at that point, I started pursuing um, just creative endeavors, such as game streaming and podcasting and video production. 
I make a series of sci-fi themed comedy um, <laughs> YouTube videos called Mercury Rising. It's sort of like a, a farcical look at the galactic news where I interview people from Star Trek and Star Wars and stuff like that, or my friends dressed as aliens. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think deep down my greatest passion is music, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that I hold the most dear as far as what I create. Yeah. Um, I used to play in a glam punk band called Mugatu, where I'd dance around on stage wearing uh, <laughs> fishnets and butterfly wings and <laughs> Batman underwear and just feeling amazing. So yeah, that's a bit about who I am. Yeah. And do you have any pets, Jesse? I do have an amazing pet. My dog, Miles, he's 17 years old. <laughs> yeah, he's and, the cutest. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Just, I know you're interviewing me this time, but sure. tell us about you. Yeah. Well, I'm Andy Alhadif, and um, yeah, man, I I am also a creator. I'm a singer, an actor, performer uh, here locally in Seattle. I actually grew up in Seattle, um, went to college in Chicago, and then moved to New York for five years, and then came back here and... Um, Met Jesse not long after that, actually. <laughs> um, I am just now getting into visual art. Um, I had a passion for it in high school, but I'm getting back into it. It's really exciting for me. Um, using this time when we're recording, it is during the COVID-19 pandemic. And yeah. uh, so using this time to sort of um, re-explore other aspects of myself besides being a live performer, because that is sort of a limited realm right now. Yeah. Um, I am really into thrifting. <laughs> I love to thrift shop, um, maybe a little too much. Uh, and actually, I've channeled that now into my um, artistic <laughs> expression. I'm finding all kinds of goodies to make art out of. And uh, fashion. I love vintage clothing and wild and crazy expression of self through aesthetics. Um, and yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, we're just a couple of weirdos. We are. It works out really well, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so okay. Well, this is great. So, we have a little picture of who you are. Um, now, I would love to ask you the big question here. Uh, what is your major pain? Yeah. So, my major pain is actually very hard to describe. I'm going to do my best because I don't know what it is. <laughs> yes. I have a chronic mystery health condition. Yes. And We've been trying to figure out what it is, um, you know, going through hardcore diagnostic testing for, uh, what is it, like 12 years, 11, 12 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I had some small issues on and off starting as early as second grade, but it really kicked into high gear in my early 20s. And I'm now um, 36. So I I think like my mid 20s and I'm now 36. So it's been about 12 years that I've, you know, been dealing with this problem. And it's... Like, there are some symptoms that are all day, every day, but for the most part, it is um, this roller coaster (laughs) of going up and down, where some days I feel relatively good, and I can do things like this, sit down and podcast, and think relatively clearly, and some days I'm just completely non-functional, and I sit on the on the couch, well, lay on the couch. <laughs> Let's be real. I'm not sitting up on those days. <laughs> I just lay on the couch and am just lying there in pain all day. Yeah. So, I'm, let me see if I can describe what it feels like um i have constant pain in my right temple in my head and then in my right foot those two places hurt all the time the right temple has been hurting for about 11 or 12 years the right foot started about five or six years ago but those two pains feel very similar it feels like this inflated balloon of pain yeah 
And on a bad day, that pain intensifies. And then I start to have all sorts of weird symptoms like muscle spasms, cognitive problems, uh, difficulty speaking, difficulty thinking. My brain doesn't seem to connect to itself very well. And my brain doesn't seem to connect to the rest of my body very well. Uh, I have a lot of exhaustion, extreme fatigue, muscle weakness. I've started walking with a cane this year because I'm having a hard time holding myself up. I started falling all the time. Yeah. Like I'll just be standing and all of a sudden my strength will just give out and I'll fall down. Um, sometimes I can't speak normally. Like I'll, I'll try to get words out and it comes out really stuttery or, um, like misshapen words. Um, very, very neurological sort of afflictions. Um, but I've been tested for everything (laughs) that my doctors can think of. I've been tested for MS like five times, um, all sorts of autoimmune diseases, neurological diseases, Uh, And they just can't find anything wrong. They can't find this smoking gun. And actually, just very recently, within the last couple of months, is the first time we've ever found any test results that were abnormal. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll we'll get to that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then there's also this crippling full body pain. Yeah. So that comes and goes. Like today, my body pain is at like a three. It's not very high at all. Mm. Um, My... My pain in my right temple and right foot is like a five or six, which is pretty good for me. This is a pretty good day. Yeah. But I get body pains that go up to 11 some days. And pain, that pain in my temple and my foot, they, it starts to burn and starts to like bore into my head. And I just can't think straight on those days. And my body starts twitching uncontrollably. Um, but yeah, I get this full body pain where it just, it just hurts to move. It feels like I've been poisoned. And it'll just, you know, flip on like a light switch. Like I'll be fine all day and then all of a sudden the pain turns on and we don't know why there's no reason for it yeah um and it gets really intense sometimes mm-hmm. and you know andy and i right now we live in a three-story townhome <laughs> we're actually just in the process of moving because i need to live uh in a smaller a smaller place without stairs because yeah. it's getting harder for me to get around um we like we just opened up conversations about should i have a wheelchair for these bad days because like some days i can't get the can I can't get my legs to do what I want them to. It's like my brain will say, okay, let's walk. And my legs will say, okay. And then they just shut down and I fall <laughs> or I'll be on the couch and I'll try to get my body to get up and I just can't move. And I'm trying and I'm trying to send those signals and I'm telling my body to move and nothing is happening. Yeah. Um, and it just sucks. It's, yeah. it's pretty shitty. Let's be real. It's yeah. pretty horrible. Yeah. It's, it is. It's really challenging. Yeah. But you know, I think, it's really good that there's a space to talk about it because this does really mostly happen in the privacy of our home. If you're well enough to go out, typically, you know, um, you're having a good day. And so when other people get to see you, you know, and so there is sort of this, um, yeah, this, this intimacy to, (laughs) to these issues. And, and I feel really grateful that you're providing this platform to share about. Um, So, so speaking of your major pain, yeah, um, could you kind of walk us through the first time that you can rem- remember having it and what the timeline, especially for somebody who has an undiagnosed yeah. illness, um, you've gone through a lot of diagnostics. I'm sure there's been so many people saying, well, what if it's this or what if it's that? Well, I know that because I'm part of the process. But yeah, can you just walk sure. us through what that has been? 
Yeah, you're a good interviewer. Look at you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> you should host this show. Um, yeah. So the first time I ever had any weird issues was way back in second grade when mm-hmm. I was just a kid. I'm 36 years old now. So I've been dealing with this for most of my life. And it was a very minor version of what I have now. Uh, it was like some exhaustion, some confusion, some blurry vision, um, just kind of f- feeling unwell, just nothing like super serious but for a for a kid who was you know bouncing off the walls with energy all the time it was weird yeah and we discovered later i mean i after i got out of second grade you know over the summer i got better and we realized you know when i was in the third grade we found out that the classroom i had been in second grade was overrun with mold and we assumed that that must have been the problem because i got better when i was out of that classroom yeah Um, Same thing happened again in high school. Um, It was my sophomore year of high school. And it was it was like the same thing, but just way worse. Mm. And the exhaustion was so much worse. The mental fog was so much worse. This was before I started having the weird neurological symptoms, but it was just really hard for me to kind of get up and do anything. I would get home from school at the end of the day, I'd put on Kid A by Radiohead and I just (laughs) lay down in bed and um, do nothing because yeah. I had no energy and I didn't even do my homework. You know, mm. a lot of days I was like, getting up in the morning, going to school, doing homework in between classes just to get it done. And luckily I was a, I mean, I was a really good student and I got really good grades and I was able to pull that off, mm-hmm. but it was, you know, it was really difficult. And after my sophomore year, we actually found out that there was a huge mold problem in my high school. Uh-huh. And uh, I know for anyone listening, it's like, I think I know what your problem is. It's mold. You know, <laughs> it's like, I've solved it. Um, and we actually thought that I was just really highly mold sensitive yeah. for most of my life. We thought that that was it. And that was the only issue. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing happened again after college uh, when I was like 23, 24 years old. Um I was living in this house in San Diego where I grew up and I was doing really, really well at the time. I was like exercising a ton. I was eating vegetarian. I was feeling really good about life and about myself. And then my health just started to decline Mm. for no apparent reason. Um, And it got really serious. This is the first time where I started having, uh, you know, muscle spasms and difficulty controlling my legs and difficulty speaking. Mm -hmm. The first time that these sort of neurological symptoms presented. Yeah. And it came on really suddenly. Uh, like it w- there was, there was sort of a slow decline, and then this like really sharp drop. It's like I fell off a cliff, and all of a sudden my body stopped working, and I just couldn't go into work. Um, I couldn't really do anything besides sit around and watch TV. And luckily, I love TV, so you know, <laughs> watched all the West Wing and many other things. Lot- lots of Stargate. Yeah. Um, and, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So after being really sick for about six months, like this is the first time we went into diagnostics. And every time we went to the hospital, I was I met with um, barriers. You mm-hmm. know, I met uh, people pushing back at me saying, well, I don't think this is real. You know, mm. um, even the very first day, I actually went to the emergency room mm-hmm. when my I, I was feeling this like crazy tingling in, in my right side. And that's something I still feel all the time. It's like weird tingly feelings yeah. in my right arm and sometimes my legs. Sometimes I'll have like patches of skin that feel hot or cold or wet. Yeah. <laughs> I'll like freak out. I'm like, Andy, did you spill on me? And there's nothing there. <laughs> Although sometimes I have spilled on you. <laughs> That's very true. I'd say more often than not. Um, yeah. And yeah. So uh, I went to the emergency room when I fell off this cliff and everything got really bad. Yeah. And 
immediately they thought that I was just pulling their leg. You know, they thought that I was trying to get drugs, mm -hmm. uh, but they just thought that I was trying to trick them into giving me pain pills. Hmm. And luckily, a friend of mine named Ben was working at the hospital. He was working the intake at the emergency room, yeah. and he convinced the doctors to see me. Otherwise, they were going to send me home. Wow. Yeah. So they did an MRI that day, the first of many MRIs that I've had. Yeah. Came back clean. Um, and that was, you know, the beginning of this long diagnostic process that I'm still inside of. It's right. been fits and starts. You yeah. know, I've, I, I, we, we did, we did everything we could think of back in San Diego. We couldn't find anything. Eventually, I ended up at a mold specialist, um, because we actually. Uh, found mold in the house that I was living in. Right. And we assumed, oh my God, this is the smoking gun. This is it. It's mold again. Uh, we found mold where I was living. I went to a mold specialist and he said that I was among the top 1% of mold sensitive people on the planet. Mm -hmm. But he also said that my symptoms were psychological, <laughs> hmm. that they were psychosomatic somehow. He said that I was tensing up around mold and that I wasn't breathing deeply and that was causing me to get dizzy. And that's what was causing these weird feelings. Okay. Like, he actually said that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, without doing any testing at all. Right. Th just, like, his opinion. Sure. And he was this, like, hotshot doctor who always went in for court cases whenever there was mold problems in San Diego. So, um, he was, like, the top-of-the-line doctor in San Diego as far as mold is concerned. Sure. And it was really devastating for me. I mean, he basically said, like, you're making this up. Like, yes, you are mold-sensitive, but all the weird symptoms are in your head. Hmm. Um. My Luckily, my primary physician disagreed with that. He had been my childhood physician. He'd known me for most of my life. Yeah. And he said, no, I've known you. This is weird. Like, this is not normal. And if it is mold, we got to get you out of the moldy environment. It's the only lead we have. Yeah. So you should move. Um, like, I, I kind of brought that to him. I'm like, should I move? And he's like, yes, I think you should move. Right. And San Diego is particularly problematic for mold. Is that right? Yeah. And this is weird. This is actually really counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, so in San Diego... A lot of the ground, the dirt is clay. And when clay gets wet, it expands and can actually hold water. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of houses, especially old houses in San Diego, are built on raised foundations. Yeah. So you just have this um, warm, wet location that <laughs> mold just loves. Yeah. So we had this like giant rainstorm in San Diego one year and my, my uh, driveway flooded. Mm. And we think that that's probably when the mold really started to grow in earnest or it was always there. And it just took me years to, um, for it to like overwhelm my body. Right. Because yeah, I mean, mold is definitely a part of the problem for me. Right. Right. Um, but it's definitely not the whole problem. We'll get to that. But right. yeah. So, so you needed, you needed to get out of San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a lot of research. Where is it better to live if you're mold sensitive? And the answer that I found was the Pacific Northwest. Again, this is very counterintuitive, but right. it rains a lot in the Pacific Northwest. So they build buildings uh, to keep water out, you know, they, it's a big concern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of new buildings, a lot of new construction, a lot of apartment buildings built out of concrete above parking garages, where it's really improbable for mold to get in. Mm -hmm. So, or for water to get in and then grow mold. Right. So I, I ended up going on a trip with my girlfriend at the time. We drove all the way up the coast, all the way to Vancouver, BC, checked out cities all the way up. And I just had this feeling on the freeway when we got to Seattle, it's like, oh, this is it. This is where I'm going. <laughs> I just felt this magic in the air. Yeah. And also just breathing in the magic in the air. Because, you know, Seattle tastes good. Yes. The air just tastes good. Yes. It's so pure and clean. And 
uh, there's just something about the air up here that just is delicious. Mm-hmm. Absolutely <laughs> agreed. <laughs> yeah. So I moved to Seattle and um, I, I'd actually temporarily moved out of the house I was living in into a mold-free space and had gotten a little bit better, but not all the way better because well it was still to, on the same property. Well enough to take this trip, I, yeah. I'm assuming. Well yeah. enough to to make the make the move. Right. Um, and it was really weird coming, coming out of that big flare-up. Mm-hmm. My mind kind of pieced itself back together a little bit. Yeah. And I realized like, wow, you sat on the couch for like six months and did nothing. <laughs> this flare-up was about a year long. Mm. I think we found the mold six to nine months in. Okay. And then I moved out of that house onto another uh, structure on the same property that was newer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but we actually had the air tested and there was a ton of mold in the air. It was mm. just like coming from the foundation from the next door neighbor, like blowing out from their foundation vents. And there was just so much mold on the, just on the property in general. Yeah. I just couldn't stay there. Yeah. So my options were like move somewhere else in San Diego or try a different city. And I... I wanted to take this as an opportunity to start fresh somewhere new. I'd never even considered leaving San Diego because I wanted to run a recording studio and that's what I was doing out of this house. Mm-hmm. And losing that was like, I can't do this again. You know, I've, mm. I blew all my inheritance money on opening this recording studio in San Diego. And if I can't stay here, then I want to try another city. Yeah. So I uh, moved up to Seattle. Six months later, my girlfriend at the time came up and joined me. And my health got like 80% of the way better just from moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't quite get all the way back to where I was before. Yeah. Um, and what that means is that I was able to function pretty much normally, except that pain in my right temple never went away. That pain was like the first symptom. It actually started before this big flare up happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took a plane ride for my cousin's wedding. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to say like four, f- four months before my flare up happened. And I was really sick on the plane. And my sinuses felt like they were exploding. <laughs> yeah. And then this pain started in my right temple, um, like really bad sinus pressure. And it yeah. kind of cleared up over the course of like another month or two. Mm-hmm. But then it just like came back. And then all these weird symptoms started. So yeah. it just did not make any sense. And that um, was during your flare up that caused you to move right. to Seattle. Right. The very beginning of that flare up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this, that pain never went away when yeah. I moved. Right. But my strength came back, my um, like the muscle spasms and all the weird stuff went way down to just a small percentage. And it really felt like if I lived my life in balance, if I didn't work too hard, didn't exercise too hard, but did exercise lightly yeah. and yeah. ate really healthily and kind of lived clean, I was able to maintain at about 80% health. Mm-hmm. And I definitely had some huge dips in that. You know, I, I worked at a chocolate factory for a while and um there was like an issue with some moldy cacao beans that came in (laughs) and i got really sick um and i had to leave that job i mean i i can't really work food service jobs because if there's like any wet surfaces that go unclean for for any period of time um i get sick if any mold starts to grow at all so uh, i had a couple of weird blips in my health but for the most part was able to maintain Started working as a leasing agent, which was a really good fit for me. Um, And then was kind of put it on the back burner, you know, my health. I'm like, okay, it's kind of working for me now. So I don't want to dive too deep into it. But then every once in a while, I'd have a bad flare up and not really know why. And um, 
eventually decided to kind of pursue it a little bit deeper and ended up at the UW headache clinic and was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, the doctor I saw, the neurologist, her theory was that mold was my trigger for fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time that we'd ever looked at mold as a trigger for something else. Mm -hmm. And the way she described fibromyalgia was fascinating. And I'm going to tell you guys about it because it's something I think that's worth sharing. Um, fibromyalgia is one of those chronic pain diseases that's sort of like a bucket, you know? Mm -hmm. You just like throw a whole bunch of different chronic pain into this bucket because we don't know what it is. So we'll call it fibromyalgia. Yeah. And not to say that it's not real because I absolutely do think that it is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, but there's still a lot of science being done around it. There's a lot of conflicting science being done around it. Mm -hmm. And at this point in my life, we're pretty sure I don't have fibromyalgia because my case progressed significantly. Right. Um, but at that point in my life, it's actually seemed like a really reasonable diagnosis. Yeah. So what she told me about it that I loved was um, if two normal people go into a room and there's a light on in the room, a normal person's brain will recognize that the light is on and it will send a signal saying light on just once yeah. and you'll get it. You'll yeah. understand that a light's on, you'll be in a room and you'll understand that there is a light that is on and that's normal. Yeah. But if you have fibromyalgia and your trigger is light and you go into a room with a light on, your brain will go light on, light on, light on, light on. Mm -hmm. It just won't stop sending that signal because it can't. Yeah. Um, and then your brain will eventually get tired because it's just sending signals constantly. Yeah. And then your brain will start to send out warning signals to say, hey, I'm getting tired here. And those warning signals generally manifest as pain, but they can manifest in all sorts of different ways, which is why it's so hard to diagnose. Yeah. So the treatment for fibromyalgia, first of all, avoid your trigger. And second of all, get light exercise as much as possible to keep your body energized. Mm -hmm. If you work too hard or exercise too much, you can wear your body out mm -hmm. and then you don't have the energy to combat light <laughs> sure um if light is your trigger whereas if you do light exercise like some light jogging or yoga something that really builds up your your chi your life energy yeah. um that can give you the fuel that you need to combat your trigger mm -hmm. so the theory was that mold was my trigger and that if i avoided mold and and did light exercise i should be fine yeah and and then i was able to kind of put it to bed you know yeah. i went down to four days a week at work and that really helped. Mm -hmm. I lived a really balanced life. Um, I, I f had this great work-life balance between my job and my creative pursuits and, you know, playing shows with my band and exercising and eating well and still, like, having room to go out and party and, and have fun and, you know, live a wild and crazy life that I wanted to live. <laughs> and that was great. And that served me well for years. Um, but then all of a sudden, my health started to decline again. Mm -hmm. And this time I was sure that there was no mold. This happened about four and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and for about six months, my I was trying to work through it, still working four days a week, um, still doing everything that had been working for me for years. Mm -hmm. But I, I just couldn't get around it. And I don't know why. I still don't know why. There was no trigger. My health yeah. just started to decline severely. Yeah. And um, this pain in my foot had started... Uh, probably like within a year before that. Okay. And we still don't know what that pain is. We yeah. can't find anything on the tests. Um, but that got more and more severe to the point where I was like limping home at the end of a long day. Yeah. And I just remember getting off work, taking the bus. I was working in Northgate at a, a property where I was leasing, taking the bus back to Seattle, getting off the bus, walking up Capitol Hill to where I was living. And 
every step was just like agonizing. Mm-hmm. And I was moving so incredibly slowly and it was just getting worse every day. Mm-hmm. And it was getting so, I was taking naps at work. I was coming to work late and leaving early and I just couldn't get, I couldn't get rest. You know, I, my body just felt like it wasn't getting something that it desperately needed. And this decline continued to the point where um, I, st- I stopped being able to function and I stopped being able to go to work. Mm-hmm. So I went on medical leave. I remember this one day right before I went on leave, I came home and I knew I needed to buy some dinner because I was too tired to make dinner. Mm -hmm. So I walked into this restaurant that was on the way home, picked up some food, walked home. They forgot to give me the dressing and it was like a a vermicelli bowl. Yeah, yeah. And what are you going to do with a vermicelli bowl without the dressing? dry as hell, yeah. There's nothing, there's no flavor. Like it's all in the, the sauce. yeah. And I just was so angry, you know, because like I could not walk back to the restaurant yeah. and it was a block away from my apartment, but I couldn't mm-hmm. make it. Mm-hmm. I just spent all my energy to get home. Mm-hmm. So I went into a really hard flare up where I was barely functional. And my sister came to visit at one point during that. Um, and I barely remembered her being there. And mm-hmm. like months later, she's like, yeah, I was, you know, this is like the last time I visited. I'm like, wait. When did you visit? I didn't even remember that she was there. It was like the weirdest thing. Yeah. So I was just in this really intense fog where it was really hard to think. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what was happening around me. All I knew was that I was in really intense pain and that my body wasn't working. I couldn't get the signals to my legs. I was having the hardest time walking. And, you know, immediately my mind goes to mold. It's like there must be some mold here. So I actually moved. Mm-hmm. I hired movers. I, you know found the strength to pack up all my stuff and <sighs> hired movers to come take it all to another building. And it did not help at all. Mm. Um, went back into diagnostics, went back to my doctor and said, hey, I, look, I think we might have missed the mark on fibromyalgia because um, there's no trigger anymore. And this right. is still happening. Right. So what is this? Right. And, and she didn't know. So went through all the diagnostics again. And about six months into that, um, my doctor basically threw her hands up in the air and said, hey, I don't know. I'm out of ideas. Mm. I'd like to send you to another doctor um, for your primary care because I have a friend who does what's called functional medicine, which is sort of uh, halfway between a naturopath and an MD where she does practice some naturopathy, but she has a, um, an actual MD and does work at the clinic. And yeah. this was back when I was going to Pacific Medical Center as right. my main, um, for my primary care. Yeah. So... Uh, I went to this functional medicine doctor and she diagnosed me with Lyme disease. (laughs) And this was like a month before I met Andy. Yeah. So like the, and Andy and I on our first date, I'm like, I think I have Lyme disease. And I had started to get a little bit better to the point where I was able to, you know, do a little bit, um, go out on some dates, which is a nice way to distract yourself if you're in pain a lot of the time. (laughs) Um, And I had started to think that maybe I'd be back to work within six months or something if my body could kind of get itself out of this flare up. But then I was diagnosed with Lyme disease and it was a um, questionable diagnosis to say the least. So my test was a false positive according Mm -hmm. to the CDC, but my doctor thought that it was positive and she conferred with a Lyme specialist in Seattle and he agreed and they started me on Lyme treatment, which was antibiotics for a year. I was on two different antibiotics for a full year. Um, And in that time, I just got worse and worse and, and it was, it was really hard. I mean, I thought, I thought that I had found the answer, you know, it's like, it's not fibromyalgia, it's Lyme disease because mold can definitely still trigger flare ups of Lyme disease if you have chronic Lyme, Mm -hmm. but I had no memory of being bitten by a tick. I grew up in San Diego Mm -hmm. and 
th- this is another thing where there's like huge discrepancies in the science. Right. Where a lot of Lyme doctors say that you can only get Lyme disease on the East Coast. And Lyme is a huge problem on the East Coast. A lot of doctors say that chronic Lyme disease doesn't even exist, that mm-hmm. you get treated with antibiotics and that's out of your system and you're fine. But then there's this a lot of people with Lyme disease who get treated and don't get better yeah. and continue to have flare-ups for the rest of their lives. Um, sometimes need to be on antibiotics for up to three years. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so we had done a year of antibiotics and I was getting worse and worse. And the test result was was uh, was in conflict to begin with. Right. Um, and to top that off, the Lyme specialist who had confirmed my diagnosis, he, his practice was shut down. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know exactly why, but I think it's because the way he was practicing was kind of against CDC guidelines. Mm-hmm. And CDC guidelines are interesting because they're very strict. So you could absolutely have Lyme disease and fall outside of the guidelines Definitely. for like, you know, depending on who you ask between 20 and 40% of the time. Right. Um, so we really didn't know. So I, I, so Andy and I were dating at this point. So now you're in the part of the story where you will remember what happened. Yes. Um, so you can definitely tell me if I'm forgetting anything. But we went to a naturopath who specialized in Lyme disease. Right. Um, based off of the recommendation of a friend who had chronic Lyme. And uh, some reviews that I found online that were very promising. This guy seemed to be this, you know, hotshot naturopath who could treat anything. Yeah. And we went to see him and he um, pretty quickly said, I don't think this is Lyme disease. Yeah. Uh, And he said, you know, so many things are being misdiagnosed as Lyme, just like fibromyalgia. So many things are being misdiagnosed as fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. because a lot of the testing is not uh, super accurate Mm -hmm. and these diseases all kind of mimic each other. Right. Um, you know, like most autoimmune diseases overlap with a lot of the symptoms that I have. Right. So he used, um, this is where we're going to get a bit in the weeds here. But, but he did, he, I want to clarify, he did um, really think he could help us. And yeah. he actually really thought that Jesse, he could help Jesse get better within a year. Oh, yeah. He told me that Which he could have super me promising. back to work within nine months to right. a year. And and that was huge because so many doctors had thrown their hands up and said, I don't know. And I've never seen anyone like you. Yeah. And, or the treatment's three years at least. Yes. And so to see a doctor who said, yeah, you know, um, I've, I have patients that are like you that have this mystery thing going on. And I feel like my treatment methods can help you no matter no matter what even if we don't have a diagnosis yeah and so that that was really promising and and you know seemed like a a clear choice to make it was so exciting at the time but he used uh methods that were really out there um he uses something called autonomic response testing or art art um also known as muscle testing and this is something that i had actually heard of as a kid because my parents had talked about it. My doctor as a kid had talked about it. This is like ancient wisdom, muscle testing. Yeah. And the general idea is that um, if you're lying on a table and you raise your arm in the air and someone tries to push your arm down and lower your arm, um, you know, if you push softly and you hold your arm up, you prevent them from pushing your arm down because you have strength. Right. But then if you introduce something like mold, you actually like hold mold near your body Um and then they push your arm down again, you will lose your strength because mold is, is bad for you. Well, or anything that for your particular body is threatening. So like right. you're mold sensitive, so it would make your arm go down. Right. I may not have my arm go down that exactly. because I'm not as mold sensitive. But Yeah. So the general idea is that you're asking your body questions. Right. And, and the weird thing is that, you know, I would lie on this table and he would test. He has this like 
whole catalog of bacteria and viruses and molds and all sorts of stuff on his shelf. Yeah. And he just tests them one at a time to see if you lose your strength to try to diagnose you by asking your body questions. Yeah. And it seemed too good to be true because um, it's just like you don't need to do a blood test or anything. But he was telling us that this was more accurate than the blood tests because mm-hmm. we already knew that the blood tests for Lyme disease were... Um, you know, some people said only like 40% accurate between yeah. 40 and 60, depending on who you ask. Others say like 80. So again, really complicated. Um, but the, the weird thing was that there were r- repeatable results with this muscle testing right. where I would feel like my strength would just be gone when he would introduce something into this circuit, if you will. Right. So And the reverse. And so he, oh, yeah. he would also set up Jesse with a treatment plan every month by doing the same method, but introducing something that may help yeah. and seeing if his, well, it's actually a little complicated because he had it's this, hard to describe. this yeah. thing that he was like a polarizer that reversed it so that it was easier to yeah. read. But basically the, the principle was ideally when you introduce the solution, you get stronger. Right. And so, you know, sort of reverse way, because it's easier to tell if someone's getting weaker than if they're getting stronger. Yeah. He basically would create a treatment plan every single month that was totally different. And we yeah. would buy all these supplements. Yeah. And um, and it was a really interesting thing because, Jesse, you can speak more about this, but there were some months you would be taking the formulas and it would seem like, oh, my God, this is great. Yeah. And then the next month he'd switch it up and you would feel like trash. Yeah. And he kept telling me that he needed to make me worse in order for me to get better. And Layers of a jawbreaker, I remember him saying. Yeah, like a jawbreaker candy. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes these chronic illnesses kind of build up in layers in your body. And as you release a layer, you can release, you know, whatever is underneath it, like the viruses or the bacteria or whatever it is that you're responding to will flood your body. So as I treat you, you're going to go through periods where you get worse and then better, and then I'm going to make you worse again, and then you'll get better, and eventually you'll stop getting worse. Exactly. Was kind of his theory. Um, And at first it seemed really promising. It was like completely different. And I will completely admit to being a little bit, uh, what's the word? Charmed? Dazzled? Dazzled, yeah. I was a little dazzled by yeah. this guy. Yeah. And I really believed what he was doing. And I believed that he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And I think that I think that I might have been played a little bit, you know? <laughs> and I don't know if it was intentional on his part. I don't think so. But, but um, yeah. yeah, I think that maybe he really does believe in what he's doing, but... And I do think that there are people he does help. He does help, yeah. and it is effective. Yeah, who for. knows? We don't know. But it, but it wasn't you, Yeah. <laughs> ultimately. And, yeah, and I was like kind of getting... I was I was having, you know, some there seemed to be light at the end of the tunnel. It seemed like I was right. getting better. Yeah. But then I had a crash within that period again where I just got way worse. Yep. Um Andy was working in New York at the time and I went to visit her and something about that trip yeah. just hit me the wrong way and I had a crash within the crash. So I was already, you know, flared up. Um and when I say that I'm flared up, I mean that I'm in enough pain every day where I'm not able to hold down a schedule or a job or anything like that. Um, and I was feeling like I was getting better. I went on this trip to see Andy in New York and I just got so much worse and we couldn't figure out why. And then he couldn't provide us any answers either. And then from that point forward, it felt like all of the treatments that he was giving me were making me way worse. Mm-hmm. And after, I mean, we saw him for at least a year and a half. Yeah, it was a year and a half. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I sat, we had a, 
like a really intense conversation. I'm like, you know, you told me nine months to a year, we're at a year and a half. I'm worse now than when I started. I don't think this is working. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, you know, going on and on about how, well, I think that you're, I think that this, you're about to break through, you know, like you have to get really bad before you can break through to being well again. And um, he just wouldn't really admit that I was going downhill. Um, and I, I started to get really uncomfortable with the whole process. I started to feel like, yeah. like I had been brainwashed. That's the word I was trying to think mm-hmm. of. I started to feel like I'd been brainwashed a little bit um, because I've actually experienced this with several naturopaths, you know, and I know that there are amazing naturopaths out there, but this whole thing where they say, okay, take this and you're going to feel better. And then I take it and I feel worse. And I say, oh, I felt worse. And they say, oh, you know, that can happen sometimes. That means it's working. Yeah. I said, well, well, you told me the opposite was true last time. He's like, no, well, now this is what's true. And it's like, no matter what happens, it was always because they did something good for you. If you get better, it's because they did it. If you get worse, it's because they did it. Yeah. And both can't be true. Right. So eventually I just, I just couldn't see him anymore because I'm like, I don't think this is working. I think I'm getting worse. Um, and I mean, you know, my symptoms were reaching like a really intense bad place um where like we we were now having conversations about you know uh like do i need to get on disability um do i need to make accommodations for my lifestyle that will make it easier for me to do things what does this mean for our relationship Uh because like andy and i got together um thinking that i would be better within a year or two and we've been together for four years almost and i'm way worse now than I was when we got together. Mm-hmm. And and we still have no answers. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean I yeah. I went back to my old medical center to try to start again and immediately just hit walls. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. Um I was trying to find a new primary care provider and I'll m- never forget this guy. Ugh, um God. where I talked to him and and I was starting to have all sorts of weird other symptoms now like I was like pooping and peeing blood and <laughs> yeah um i was having like weird stomach problems and pain in my stomach mm-hmm. and uh feeling in the back of your throat oh yeah then uh, this so yeah the the naturopath we were seeing had me inhale like this nebulizer formula where you actually i actually got a pediatric nebulizer <laughs> which would you know aerosolize this formula that he made and then i started developing all sorts of sinus problems um, like inflammation in my sinuses that I still have that has not gone away. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he caused it or what, but um, but yeah, I mean, all sorts of other weird things were happening, like this chest rash. And uh, so, I, so I went to try to get a new doctor and this guy, I'll never forget, he was just like, well, sometimes you just have to kind of grin and bear it and move on with your life, you right. know? And I'm like, do you not understand what I'm saying to you? This is the first time I'd met him. Yeah. He'd done no testing at all. Yeah. Um, he's just like, well, you just got to move on with your life. I'm like, I'm telling you that I physically can't, and right. you're telling me to do it anyway, and that makes no sense. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was not good. Yeah, that guy was not yeah, great. he was horrible. So finally, uh, someone recommended to me, well, why don't you go to University of Washington Medical Center and like transfer all your care over there? I did. Was it you? It was me, because I had a family friend who had had a really freaky thing happened to them and had gone to the UW and had just raved about their care and had talked about how they were a research hospital and that they were really, really good about patient care and about um, 
doctors that were willing to try things because that part of their mission was to discover and learn and not just to treat. And so I, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, sounds like it could be a great fit. And so yeah. I, I had brought it up to you, but at the time your insurance was making it very hard to transfer right. your care. But since we were living together, I got on your insurance as a domestic partner. Right. Well, this is another interesting thing. And, you know, as we're talking about healthcare and chronic illness. And so there's a lot of ways in which the medical system is sort of set up to work against you. Yeah. And one of the things was that, you know, so we had gotten to this point in your diagnostics where we were going to jump back into actually diagnostics. We were like, okay, you know, this thing with the naturopath, this, this line of inquiry didn't work. Let's go back to Western medicine. Let's see what there is clearly something majorly wrong. We need to figure this out. Yeah. So we actually went to my doctor. Yeah. Um, and kind of was we were, you know, just just as because he's also a family friend and we were just like, what's what's your best idea, you know, for Jesse? And he said, you know, there's one um neurologist that I've heard is highly recommended here in Seattle. And if he can't do it for you, I don't think we have the, the gun power here in Seattle. <laughs> and I think you need to go to the Mayo Clinic. And so we what we made an appointment to get in with that neurologist. But at the time, Jesse was on Apple uh, Health. Apple Health. Which is free insurance here in Seattle. And for people who make no money like me. Right. <laughs> and he was not currently taking any people on that healthcare. Right. And the thing is, you cannot pay out of pocket right. if you're on Apple Health. Right. So we there was no avenue through which we could see this doctor. <laughs> and so at that point, we were, it was actually about to be January. We were talking, I was talking to someone about my insurance and come to find out, I can add a um, domestic partner onto my coverage. And Jesse and I had been living together for basically two years at that point. Yeah. And um, great. So that was our next path. It was like, Jesse's going to get this coverage. It's going to be easier to go to the UW because they'll take this insurance, no problem. We'll transfer things to the UW. We'll see this neurologist. And Jesse, take it away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we went to this neurologist and he did a full workup. He did another MRI. And it, I'd had so many at this point. I've actually yeah. lost count. Um, because... Every time I talk to a neurologist, they always think I have MS. So that's the first thing they check for. And this is actually a good moment to maybe, can you um, describe to us all the different, I mean, obviously not all the blood tests, but all the different kinds of testing you've had done that you can think of? Uh, Well, many MRIs, Uh um, CT scans, Mm -hmm. x-rays, tons and tons of blood tests, some like this weird electromagnetic test where they send elect- electrical current through your muscles mm-hmm. and it's extremely painful. Yeah. <laughs> spinal tap? Oh my god, the spinal tap. Yeah. And my my spinal fluid leaked after that, which is excruciatingly painful. <laughs> uh um, sleep, right? Sleep. Oh yeah, test. I did a sleep study. You can explain this better than I can. <laughs> I I honestly just don't there's been so many tests like yeah. I don't even remember. But this is the thing to anyone listening to is just that it's so interesting because when you've had all these tests done and you go to a new doctor and yeah. they see just yeah. how much, a lot of times they'll just instantly kind of go, there's nothing I can think of that hasn't been done. And uh, yeah, so this is times. the point in the journey where we run, we ran into a lot of that Yeah. Um, because this neurologist pretty much, he did a couple extra blood tests, another MRI for good measure, Yeah. but kind of you could tell going into it already saw the history of testing and was just sort of like... 
I just don't think there's anything I can add. Yeah. And when I went through his workup, his diagnosis was that I must have something that is not yet defined by medical science. He thinks that I have a new disease. Yeah. <laughs> the Jesse Mercury disease. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, and he, he wanted to send me to the Mayo Clinic. Right. Because he had also studied there. And so, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I applied to the Mayo Clinic and they rejected me. Yeah. They, yeah. And we still don't really know why. They said that there was no room at that time. Right. Um, and the thing is that you can appeal and yeah. you can have the doctor, you know, write your reference saying, no, I really think you need to reconsider. But then COVID broke out. Right within right. that timing. Yeah. Um, and Jesse also was in the midst of applying to another program. The Undiagnosed Disease Network here University in Seattle. Washington. Yeah. yeah. And, and was, they rejected me. And their reasoning was that they looked at his testing history and thought that there was nothing they could add. Yeah. Which was really interesting considering they're supposed to be a program for people that have undiagnosed diseases. Right. You'd think that they would have methods of testing or ideas outside of the realm of a typical medical facility. Yeah. So that was interesting and a little disappointing. Yeah, there's this weird sliding scale where when you first start out, they're like, well, I think you're just here for drugs. I think you're making this up. Mm. And then as you get deeper into it, they're like, well, it seems like maybe there's something wrong, but I think it's in your head. And then this ha this actually happened to me several times where they send me to a psychiatrist mm -hmm. to have the psychiatrist determine if if it seems like psychosomatic in some way. Yeah, what and, is that called? Uh, conversion disorder. Yeah. So yeah, the the neurologist I was seeing right before I was diagnosed with Lyme disease did diagnose me with a conversion disorder, sent me to a psychiatrist or psychologist mm -hmm. who said, no, this is not a conversion disorder. This seems like some sort of medical condition. Mm -hmm. And then they spit you back out to the doctors who have no idea what to do next. Yeah. And it's just this endless cycle. And I've ended up having to get psychoanalyzed uh, three times, I think, mm -hmm. to be able to even continue to get care. Right. Because when the doctors can't figure it out, the first thing they think is, oh, this is not real. If I can't figure it out, it's not real. It's not there. It's not anything. Right. Or in some cases, they have to actually yeah. fill that out because they have right. to give you some sort of diagnosis and right. that's the only thing that's left. Exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah, but then you go to the psycho analysis and like, no, this is real. You should go back. Right. But then there's nowhere to go back to. Right. Um, and that's what eventually led me to like completely cutting ties with Pacific Medical Center because I went through that cycle like two or three times there right. and then went to the University of Washington. Right. So, um, yeah. So yeah. that's kind of where we left off is yeah. that, you know, so. And this... that, that neurologist who said I had, the new neurologist who said I had something new. Right. They were with he was Swedish. With, uh, Polyclinic, I think. Oh, okay. But not yeah, UW. Not UW, yeah. And so by the time we had gone through the process of getting rejected from the Mayo Clinic, getting rejected from the Undiagnosed Disease Network, having this other neurologist through COVID have a, a final follow-up with us on um, telehealth saying, yeah, I don't really have any more ideas for you. Then Jesse established care at the UW and got this really great primary care yeah. physician who you're still seeing now. And he's actually not even an MD. He's a nurse. Yeah. But what I love about him is that he is really open to running tests. Yeah. And he told me, he's like, I have no idea what this is. Yeah. And I don't think I'm going to be able to figure this out, but I will send you to anyone and run any test you want. Mm -hmm. And he's held to that. Um, and we've actually, so I mean, he sent me to a movement disorder neurologist, a rheumatologist, um, an ENT, ear, nose, and throat doctor. Mm -hmm. And... A few others that I recently, can't remember. Uh, the the most recent one is the hematologist. A hematologist. That yeah. yeah, which we haven't even done yet. That's next week. Yeah, and a gastroenterologist. Right. So 
So I've had a whole bunch of testing done. And <laughs> say that three times yeah. fast. <laughs> so the only thing they've ever found on my MRI that was weird is that I had these sinus uh, cysts, like oh, mu- mucus cysts yeah. in my sinuses. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I also had a deviated septum. So mm-hmm. because we can't find anything else, I went to an ENT and said, hey, have you ever seen a mucus cyst cause any weird pain like this or a deviated yeah. septum cause weird pain like this? And he said, no. Um, but just in case, why don't we do a surgery? And correct these problems. Right. Uh, and just see what happens. Yeah. So I actually did that a couple months ago. I yeah. had a septoplasty yeah. where he, you know, basically straightened up my deviated septum uh-huh. and uh, and popped the mucus cyst that was in my sinuses uh-huh. and drained that out. Shaved down the turbinates. Yeah, I had enlarged turbinates, which I think was caused by... Um, like the the thing that the naturopath had me inhale, and it can and it possibly. can be it yeah, can, it can it, also be caused by a deviated septum, right? Yeah, and there was fluid behind my there ear was too. Fluid behind his ear, and over over the course of the past seven years or so, this big cyst had developed on the back of your head yeah, that had that gotten... popped up for, right when I flared up, like four years. Oh, ago. Okay, four years yeah. ago. Okay, right when I flared up, a whole bunch of weird things happened. Yeah, um, I got gynecomastia in my in both of my breasts, which is, um, it's like basically like breast tissue growing in men that shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not very big, so it's not a big deal. It's nothing I need surgery for. But when it happened, it was painful. Yeah. And I went in and actually had a mammogram done. Mm. And like, yes, this is gynecomastia. And I had started using cannabis products to deal with the pain. And they said that that was probably why. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I can't get any more treatment for that because I haven't been able to find any other pain treatment besides cannabis that's been helpful. Right. So I haven't been able to go off of it long enough to find out if that's what caused the gynecomastia. So I still have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, and this cyst popped up in the back of my head. So, yeah. and so then he like, there was, that. so he yeah, did he, five things. he did like five things in this yeah. surgery yeah. and he put a tube in my right ear and there was fluid in there. And he was, I told him about this airplane ride when this pain in my right temple started 11 or 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he said that he'd seen people, who had something weird happen on airplanes where some like fluid got stuck mm-hmm. and st- got stuck for about 10 years. Yeah. So he said that that was a possibility. So he put a tube in my ear and it's going to be there for the next year. Yep. Um, and we're hoping that that fluid will drain out. My ear will dry up and we can take that tube out and mm-hmm. it'll go back to normal. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we did this whole giant procedure mm-hmm. and they put me on prednisone right before the procedure Prednisone is a, uh, a a really powerful anti-inflammatory. And a steroid. It's yeah, it's a steroid. Yeah. yeah, so it's supposed to like prep you for surgery. But in the days leading up to my surgery, while I was on the prednisone, I felt amazing. <laughs> yeah, which is common. But yeah. when you're in Jesse's scenario, feeling amazing just means feeling normal. Normal. Yeah. 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 Like I was able to walk and um, lift weights and think. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And we had been talking to doctors for years about what if I have an autoimmune disease and the treatment for a lot of autoimmune diseases is prednisone. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, prednisone makes most people feel amazing, you right. know, when you first go on it. So yeah. this is kind of anecdotal evidence. Um, but that the weird feeling of like something being stuck in my sinuses went away. And, you know, I'm a singer and I, I make music and I've been really struggling to sing for the last few years because... Um, my sinuses are like inflamed all the time mm-hmm. and it's really hard to control my voice. And then like in the days leading up to, and then the few days after my surgery, when I was on prednisone, my voice felt incredible and I could sing again. Yeah. And it was 
amazing. But there was also a little complication with the surgery. Well, yeah. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> Jesse ended up losing a liter of blood. Yeah. Um, his. I bled out my nose for right, an hour. So and I so I actually have a little more information about this because Jesse was pretty out of it when this all <laughs> happened. I was basically brought back into the post-op recovery space where Jesse was bleeding down his shirt profusely. There were nurses running around, moving this tube between his nose and his mouth because they didn't want him swallowing blood after the surgery because that can make you throw up. And when you throw up after you have sinus surgery, that's a real problem. Anyway, turns out that during the surgery, it's really uncommon that this happens, but this can happen. So um, the doctor, the surgeon was cauterizing a few different blood vessels. And when your body is sort of under stress of surgery, sometimes um, it contracts, right? It tenses up. And then basically what happened is once Jesse's body post-surgery had recovered enough to relax, the blood vessel had expanded and the cauterization didn't stay. Yeah. And so he was in the bathroom getting ready to go and it just started gushing. Yeah, they like woke me up from... uh... Uh, what's it called when they put you under? Anesthesia. 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 Yeah. They, they, <laughs> yeah, they woke me up from anesthesia and started doping me up with pain pills because, I mean, I was as soon as they woke me up, I was in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, and then they, like, got me feeling good. I was able to stand up, put my clothes on, go mm-hmm. to the bathroom. And while I was in the bathroom, I was like, why does it feel like something is running down the back of my throat? Mm-hmm. And I got out of the bathroom, like, something feels weird in my throat. And then my nose just exploded <laughs> with blood. And the doctor's, yeah. like, running around me in a panic. And yeah. they had to call the surgeon back. Who had gone home. Who had gone home. And it yeah. took him at least an hour to get back. Yeah. And I was basically bleeding out for yeah. at least an hour. <laughs> but the, the the really pertinent part of this is that, so one of the uh, doctors that Jesse's um, primary care that we love so much sent him to was, as Jesse mentioned, a movement specialist, a neurologist who specialized in movement disorders. Yeah. And um, he did just a few additional tests that Jesse hadn't necessarily had done. And one of them was for a ferritin level. And basically, I, I believe that's not measuring the overall iron in your system. It's measuring your absorption level. Something is like that. that. Right? Yeah. Like ferritin is like iron serum yeah. or something like yeah. that. And mine was at 20. Right. And 20 is the lowest number that is normal. Yeah. But for someone with a movement disorder, they want you to be at 50. Right. So, so he put him on supplements. Yeah, he put me on iron supplements for months. And then Jesse had this blood loss, but then we waited a few months after the surgery to regain the blood. Yeah. Then to also um, up his ferritin and and get it stabilized and then increased like the original plan was. Yeah. And now we're, now we're in very current territory in yes. terms of your journey. So this is stuff that like happened last week. Right. Right. Yeah. So you went to go see because of the um, prednisone being so effective, you thought maybe seeing a rheumatologist could be a good next step. Yeah, that's what my doctors recommended. Right. My, my ENT, who I love, the guy who did my sinus yeah, surgery. Yeah, he's great. You know, I, I've had these sinus issues for a long time and they've gotten uncomfortable in the last couple of years, but I had uh, really uncomfortable, but they had been sort of uncomfortable for years. And I had another ENT who's like, yeah, you have a deviated septum and you have a, a mucus cyst and you have some weird pressure in your right ear, but I think this is just how you were born and I think you just need to live with it. <laughs> Whereas this new guy at University of Washington, um, I mean, back at Pacific Medical Center, I used to hear you just need to live with it all the time. Right. And at University of Washington, he's like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to help, but I'm very willing to try. Yeah. And that's what everyone keeps saying. Right. So my ENT now, he's amazing. He did this surgery. 
Um, and he said, like, the worst case, you're going to breathe a little bit easier because we're going to correct your deviated septum. Right. Best case, maybe it helps with um, some of these weird symptoms. Right. And it doesn't look like it's going to help with the weird symptoms. Like, I'm far enough away from the surgery now and none of the weird symptoms have changed. Yeah. But it took a huge thing off the table. It's like, yeah. is this mucus cyst a problem? Is it pressing on a nerve somewhere? Right. Um, is there weird pressure in my ear and this fluid and all that stuff? Is that some sort of stagnant bacterial infection? Doesn't look like it. It looks like that was all stuff that is, you know, just uncomfortable. Right. And um, well, unfortunately, I still have like all this inflammation in my sinuses, so I can't even enjoy being able to breathe better yet. Right. But I'm so glad we did that and corrected it because Absolutely. it took stuff off the list. Absolutely. Yeah. And so your doctors, they thought, okay, maybe the next step is to see a rheumatologist. Yeah. So, and they also had me recheck my ferritin right. after being on iron supplements for months. Right, yeah. Losing a liter of blood and then waiting for a couple more months to right. build my blood back up. Yeah. And they rechecked my ferritin and it went down from 20 to 4. Yeah, which is not... Which is weird. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, that, for even someone who doesn't have a movement disorder, that's not a good range to be in. Right. And at the same time, I spoke with a rheumatologist and she's also amazing and... I, I love University of Washington. Yeah. You know, moral, moral of the story, if you're running into dead ends at your hospital, try a different hospital. Absolutely. Um, f and, you know, try a research hospital or like a mm -hmm. university hospital. They seem to be a little bit more open-minded. And there's also like a, a difference in the way that hospitals are categorized. Mm -hmm. They told me what it meant once and I wish I could remember. I'll, I'll try to get this information in the future. But my primary care, um, I, I mentioned this to him. He's like, yeah, you know, at the other types of clinics... They have like quotas they have to meet. They right. have to get you out in a certain amount of time. They have to see a certain amount of patients in a day. And they're discouraged from running too many tests and stuff like that. And we're not like that at all at this type of hospital. I don't remember what he called it. Yeah. Um, something different. But it's like, you know, the difference between a PPO and an HMO or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I don't know what those are. But right. um, but anyway, so yeah, we're not like that here. So we can run as many tests as we want. And I've experienced that at every step at University of Washington Medical mm -hmm. Center. And with the rheumatologist, she ran like 15 tests. Yeah. So many tests. And she also found something weird in my blood. Yeah. Uh, my ceruloplasmin was low. Uh-huh. Do you know what ceruloplasmin is? Tell us, Jesse. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> but it was low. And it points, <laughs> it points to a disease called Wilson's disease, which is an accumulation of copper in your body. Um. So she retested my copper, we, and we thought, oh my God, if I have high copper, then I have Wilson's disease. She yeah. tested my blood for copper. Yeah. But then my copper came back low, which was also <laughs> weird. Um, yeah. And there was a couple of other things Today. I don't remember that were like on the low end of normal. Right. Or, or below the low end of normal. Right. So now I have like, like this weird iron deficiency, this weird copper deficiency, um, and... And I keep asking, I ask my doctors, okay, so like, what does that mean? And they're like, I really don't know. This is a weird result. So I'm going to send you to a hematologist. And that's coming up like next week. Right. And just today you had a ultrasound of your um, right temple. Because... Oh, yeah. My, both temples and my neck oh. and my shoulders. Right. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about Looking that. for vasculitis, basically. Right. And that was another thing that the rheumatologist would have been able to diagnose. But it looks yeah. like... But that's that, yeah, not an issue. The guy who did the test said everything looked normal. So yeah, yeah, someone years ago said because I have this chronic pain in my right temple, they they thought it might be temporal arteritis or giant cell arteritis is the more correct term for that, um, which is like chronic pain in your temple due to inflammation in your blood vessels. Mm -hmm. um, so I was finally tested for that today, and I don't have that. So we yeah, keep which is we keep, a lot of our yeah. story, right? It's yeah, like, we keep getting things this. off the list. Nope, maybe yeah. it's this. Nope. 
Yeah. Um, but this is a weird test result. Let's double check it with this. Oh, yeah. that's another weird test result. Now we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of been our journey. Yeah. Or been well, that's journey. been like the latest of the journey, which is yeah. a huge step forward. Because yeah. before it was like, let's test for everything under the sun and everything came back normal. And then all my doctors are telling me, well, you, you're very healthy on paper. So I have no idea what's going on. Right. Um, but now, because of my higher quality of care, because mm-hmm. they're willing to run more tests, mm-hmm. um, they're now talking about doing like genetic testing, heavy metal testing, yeah. um, really just keep testing until they can figure it out. Yeah. Um, whereas like six, seven years ago when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, I was like, that's it. You know, that's what I have. I'm going to stop trying to find it and just move on with my life. But then it just keeps getting worse. Yeah. So. We keep going back to the drawing board, and I really have hope this time. Yeah. You know, I really feel like we might get it this time. Yeah. Find that smoking gun evidence. Oh, my God. It would be so yeah. incredible. I, yeah, I um, I kind of want to move on to a, this is a good transition to yeah. another part of this interview, Um, to sort of talk about dating with a chronic illness. And, yeah. and I want to talk about us. I want to talk about our relationship, which is almost four, it'll be four years in Jan, no, Four years in January. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but before we talk about that, I'm curious um, if you're open to talking about it. Just in general, your dating history over your life, having this illness and yeah. things you've learned, experiences you've had, things like that. Yeah. It has affected all of my serious relationships in one way or another. Um, mostly with you. <laughs> most seriously with you right well but, and i've never really known you well right which is right yeah but um but yeah i mean the when i first moved to seattle i was seeing someone and we were together for three years and we started dating when i was well and then i had that first big crash in my you know early mid-20s um and she stuck by me through that and then we moved to seattle together mm-hmm. and you know i said to her it's like i've got to move because I need to figure out if this is environmental and I don't, you know, I'd like for you to come with me. Um, If you don't want to come with me, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if you'd like to see where our relationship can go and you want to move to Seattle, you know, hop on board, let's go. Yeah. Um, And she ended up moving to Seattle with me and we ended up, you know, breaking up uh, how much long like a year later year and a half later i think mm-hmm. um just because we weren't you know the best match for each other but it took us that long to figure it out but she really stuck i mean the, the health problems didn't seem to bother her you know mm-hmm. like she was with me before i got sick was with me through the sickness and then stayed with me until after uh, when that flare-up ended yeah and when i was doing much better yeah um and we broke up for completely unrelated reasons right but all the other serious relationships I've had, it has been a massive factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I dated someone a few, a, a couple years before I met you, Andy, who expressed to me almost a year into our relationship that because of my health, she wasn't sure if she'd ever want to have kids with me mm-hmm. or get married um, because she wasn't sure if she'd want to um, put herself in that position with a partner who wasn't always present. And I was at like 80% health at the time. Yeah. I was so much better than I am now. Yeah. And I was so upset by it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it kind of hit me out of nowhere because at that time, I was in this place where it's like, well, of course I could still have kids, you know? Yeah. Um, but now in this relationship with you, I'm really questioning if I can have kids anymore because yeah. I haven't been able to work in four years. 
there's so many days where I can't even take care of myself, where I really need help, like taking care of my dog, um, where I'm in too much pain to move. It's like, how am I going to have kids in this scenario? So I've always wanted kids. And now I'm at this point in my life where I'm feeling like it might not be a practical or reasonable thing to do, which is really heartbreaking for me. But it's also, you know, really difficult on our relationship because it's like, (laughs) what do you do? You know, because you have to make your choices here also. And then you've been with me um, only while I've been in this flare up. And you, I mean, the flare up, (laughs) you didn't see the worst of it when it first started. But then, um, like, we got together during the flare-up when I was at a relatively okay place, mm-hmm. and then I just went downhill from there. Yeah. Um, to the point now where, like, I've had some really rough periods, um, as bad as when this flare-up first started since we've been together, Yeah. where you and I have had to start questioning our own future. Like, mm-hmm. what, what can we realistically do? Because we can't plan, you know? Right. Like, why don't you... I, I know you have some feelings about this. No, none. No, I not no not feeling. being able to plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely a challenge. Um, I think over the course of our relationship, your condition has definitely overall gotten worse. There's been lots of peaks and valleys, but is a general trend. I would say, you know, um, it's definitely worse than when we first started seeing each other. Yeah. Um, and as the listeners have heard in this very detailed story, um, there's just been a lot of stops and starts with with the even just the portion of this journey that I've been on with you. And um, yeah, I mean, we're seeing a counselor yeah. uh, right now, which is I if anybody has the means to do it, I highly recommend it. Agreed. Um, I would say even if your relationship is not under stress the way that ours is with the health conditions, I think no matter what, it can only improve your communication and your connection um, if it's something that you're open to doing and you have the resources to do. Um, And that's been a really interesting space to talk about a lot of really big things that we've been dealing with. And we've been dealing with sort of the peak of these relationship decisions also during COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is its own yeah. tangled web. Where um, living together becomes being trapped together. <laughs> <laughs> and our lease, okay, so our lease came up at the end of June. And we knew at the end of June, well, that we weren't going to move at the end of June. That wasn't, that wasn't even in the realm of possibility. Um, but we... The current home we live in, as Jesse mentioned, is a three-story townhome, and it's become very difficult to navigate physically for him yeah. and for Miles, our 17-year-old dog. <laughs> and um, and it just isn't – it's not the right fit for us anymore. And so we knew that we didn't want to sign up for another year. And so we, we asked for a six-month lease. That didn't end at a time that felt good for the landlord, but a nine-month lease, lease she felt okay about. So we signed up for a nine-month lease, and, um, you know, time goes on. And that, that deadline, that idea of what are we doing next, where are we living next, and how are we living next is sort of looming. And that brought with it a lot of questions about our future in general yeah. and how has this past two and a half years living together been and what does it feel like and you know i see jesse in pain every day there's not a day you're not in pain um there are days where it's far less present but Mm -hmm. there is there is not a single day that goes by that we don't talk about your health or your pain yeah um it's every day and that it's really hard 
Um, yeah, and you've expressed like on the really bad days where I'm like lying on the couch moaning. Yeah, you've expressed that you feel pain too. Right. So this is another thing, and and I think that people process differently. I'm a hugely empathetic person, um, and these this is some work. In addition to work that Jesse has to do in regards to me, I have work to do in regards to myself in terms of um, taking on other people's emotions because that's just not healthy no matter what the scenario. Um, But, you know, the minute Jesse goes into a crash or he falls or he's on the couch and he can't get up or he can't communicate, I instantly tap into, okay, how can I understand what he needs? What do I need to do to make it better? What does this mean for the rest of our day? What do I have to adjust? Who do I have to communicate with? How is he going to get fed? How is Miles going to get walking? What can I do to lower his pain load? Has he has medication? Has he had weed? You know, I mean, your brain just starts to, and the anxiety bubble in my chest just goes, you know, and it's something that developed over time that I wasn't aware of at first. And then as I became aware of it, I was like, well, shit, I can't live like this. And Jesse doesn't want me living like this. And how do we address it? And so I have work to do on creating energetic boundaries um, (laughs) and also around not trying to anticipate every need and as much as I can letting Jesse tell me what he needs. Um, But it's really hard because I, I am someone that is, I am very solutions oriented. And this is another issue that, not even issue, but challenge we've faced in our relationship is like, Jesse is very present and very much sometimes just needs to feel what he feels and just be with it. And there's not, it's nothing to do with solving it. It's nothing to do with planning what's going to be next. It's just where he is. And that, I, that's my coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Is to, yeah. Yeah. Just to be in the moment and try to make myself as comfortable as I can in the moment. Right. Because... I don't know when I'm going to stop being in pain. So it doesn't make sense to think about the future in that moment. Yeah. It like the the best chance I have of of feeling better is to make my body feel better. Right. By you know trying to deal with what's happening in the moment. So yeah. if that just means like lie down and watch TV or you know whatever it is, like I need to eat a certain thing or make sure I'm hydrated or whatever, I just have to kind of be present, listen to my body and deal with it. In the moment. Yeah. So then being asked a lot of questions about like, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? What's going to happen the next day after that? And like, I my brain can't process that <laughs> yeah. because that pulls me back into the pain, you know? Right. And then, then I, yeah. Yeah. Because then I'm like, well, how much pain am I in? Will I be able to do this thing later? Right. I don't know. Right. You know? And I struggle with it because that's that's how I function. I right. like to plan. I like to know what we're doing. I like to have something I'm looking forward to. And, and you know, and so that's been a point of tension that we're trying to work yeah. through. Um, Jesse also can't come to things probably, I don't know what percentage of the time, but... Like 30, 40? Probably higher than that. You think so? I do at this point. Yeah. But... I mean, it also, it's hard to gauge right now because the number of things to go to is much lower. So, Yeah, like the chance that I'm going to make it to any particular thing that we have planned is 50-50 at best. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that statement. And it's it's not like I don't want to go. It's like... No, no. It's like my body might not function and I might not be able to walk. I might be in so much pain that like... Having any sensory input is just too much I, yeah. on top of the we, pain. We've been heading out the door, and the task of putting your shoes on has been the thing that decided you couldn't go. Because <laughs> yeah. you couldn't tie your shoes, you yeah. know? like, And that's the thing that people don't see. And I, right. and it's like, so right. I show up alone. 
And people go, where's Jesse? Or did Jesse not feel up to coming? And I always have to say, yes, he says hi, he sends his best. But that's a really hard thing Mm -hmm. to do all the time. And so sometimes I ask Jesse to text yeah. my family and say, I'm sorry, I can't come. So then then I'm not the person always in the position to say, Jesse can't make it. He doesn't feel well enough. Jesse can't yeah. make it. He doesn't feel, you know, it's like, so at least I, I'd like to provide some voice to the people of partners who have chronic illness because it's a really specific spot to be in. Yeah. And um, I want to encourage people that it's hard, right? Because I feel like I can only put so much on you. I can only ask so much of you. But our relationship is better when I ask more of you. Mm -hmm. And you can either rise to it or you can't. But me predetermining whether you'll be able to is not the way to go. And so, you know, asking, Jesse, I need you to tell my family you can't come. Or, Jesse, will you make me a cup of tea? Even if I see he's in pain, if I think he's actually functional... I'm going to ask for things I need, you know, yeah. like, will you rub my head? Will you? And I've really encouraged you to do that. Right. And I appreciate when you do. Yeah. And and sometimes I have to say no, and that sucks. But yeah. like, but that's the better of the options. Exactly. Because yeah. otherwise I'm sitting there and I'll be honest, like resentment builds up when sure. you, when you are like, I am I'm doing the dishes for the fifth time this week and taking, <laughs> and you know, and it's like, and the thing is, that's not based in anything of a feeling towards Jesse. Right. It's a feeling about what do I need and how, why am I not, why can't I ask for it? And so just the ability to know that I can say to Jesse, can you do the dishes tonight? And he can say no, but at least I'm not automatically assuming he can't and then getting mad at him for not doing it without <laughs> checking in with him about it, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, I think in general, I think a lot of what happens when you are in a position where you're the girlfriend and also the caretaker is that you start to lose sight of the girlfriend side of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we've really been trying to focus on because being your girlfriend is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And being a caretaker is, it's also a privilege, but it, it has a lot more weight to it. Yeah. You know, I've never heard you say as a privilege. I don't know if that rings true to me. I mean, I think that taking care of someone is a privilege. Well, I think about my dog, Miles, a lot, who is now 17, and he's really hard to walk because he stops every three seconds to look behind him for no reason. <laughs> um, and he's got this, like, hacking cough that he's had for years. Yeah. Um, but I just love him so damn much. Yeah. And I want to make... Sh- and, you know, like, getting up to walk him is so hard for me sometimes, very very often. Right. But I push myself to do it and as much as I can because I love seeing him outside because yeah. he loves to be outside. And I love him so much yeah. that I just deal with the downsides, mm-hmm. you know, because, like, he's family and and he's my best friend and I would never abandon him. Mm-hmm. But then like sometimes he'll be like standing outside. I'm like, Miles, we have to walk. Come on. And I'm like pulling him and I'm so angry and frustrated. I'm like, yeah. please just go. And then I'll try to feed him a treat and he won't eat it. And it's like, Miles, what are you doing? I'll give him dinner and he just <laughs> doesn't want to do it. And then he's like super thirsty and crying because he's thirsty, but then he won't drink his water. And I have to like sit by him and like point at the water and then he'll finally drink it. And he's like, oh my God, where's this water been? And it's like, it's been right in front of you, Miles. <laughs> but then I just have to like, 
remind myself he's a 17 year old dog you know right he's already outlived his lifespan it's incredible that he's still alive and yeah. i'm so lucky to get to spend more time with him yeah um and i am your dog basically is what no, i say no i'm just kidding no. no 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 i'm just what i'm saying is that um you know love is worth it yeah. and being in love and being in a relationship is worth it right and you can get creative about how you make these things work. Right. And that's what we've been working on recently. Well, we're in the midst of figuring yeah. that out. We're, exactly. We're doing something extreme. Yeah, we kind of are. Yeah. Um. So, you know, we've lived together for... By the end of March is when our lease is up, and that will have been almost three years. I think a little over three years, right? Well, no. Because no, almost was, three years. You're right. Almost you're right. three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just three months. Because we did shy. a nine-month lease this time. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And... Uh, and, you know, so here's what we did. Um, actually, literally yesterday was the last day that I was there. We we decided for two weeks during COVID <laughs> that I would go stay in an Airbnb and that Jesse would stay in our home with Miles. And we would just see how it felt to live in separate spaces and still be together. Yeah. Kind of like we did when we first got together. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Jesse does need some extra help. And also learning about the probability and possibility of him being able to live alone. I mean, that's like a huge question mark. Right. Um, and how, you know, on days where he can't get up, what's what, how do we deal with that? And, um, you know, just, just understanding the balance of how much time together, how much time apart, and what having separate living spaces would do for our relationship. And um, I'll speak to my experience first, and then you can speak to yours, but... My experience was that having my own space was huge and yeah. not seeing every point of pain during your day mm -hmm. made it so much easier for me to do the things like the dishes, to do the things <laughs> like come over and watch a show and just be in the moment and not be thinking, well, he just he just got through this crash. I don't know. Is he going to need to da da da? Like... I would come in, I'd see what was happening, and we'd go from there. And not being there all day, every day was huge for me. And I also then had the room to wake up in the morning and do what I wanted to do in my schedule and my time. Even if there was no health condition in the picture, there's a piece of the living separately that works for me as a human, just yeah. as a person. Um, felt really good. Um, and I don't know if, if you want to speak about your experience during these two weeks. Yeah. Well, I don't want to bury the lead too much. We just rented, a, <laughs> we rented two apartments on the same floor of a building. Yeah. So we're going to live next to each other. Yeah. Down the hall from each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. and we're both really excited about it really for excited. a couple of reasons. And I will definitely admit that when this first came up, I was freaking out. Yeah. Because what I was hearing was that you're so hard to live with <laughs> that I don't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like seeing you in pain is too hard. Mm -hmm. And I, and I'm like, well, it's also very hard to be in pain. <laughs> sure. yeah. um, and there's, you know, in relationships like this, there is a really unbalanced energy because I have no choice, you know, like yeah. if I had a choice to not live with this pain, I would obviously choose not to. Yep. If I could figure out, what pills I could take to make it go away, I would be munching those down. <laughs> but we don't know what it is. We don't know how to fix it. Yeah. So I can't get out of it. I have to live with it. And it is my full-time job right now to be sick and try to figure out how to get better. You know, yep. like that's taking up, you know, a majority of my time and energy. Yep. Um, and Andy is, 
is not that way. <laughs> Andy is choosing to be with someone who is that way. So it's a choice for you and it's not a choice for me. And resentment builds up because of that. Mm -hmm. And it, that's unavoidable. Uh, and it's how you deal with that and how you process through it um, and, and acknowledge it <laughs> to start with. I mean, that's so important. Yeah. Um, but, and there's this, I've talked to other people in relationships like this, where there's this feeling when you are the one who is well, that it's unfair to be frustrated yes. because the other person is sick and how dare you feel yeah. like, like frustrated and how dare you feel that they're doing this to you. And in fact, they are sick and like, can't get better and, and you're being cold and heartless. And that is not at all true. Mm -hmm. That is not at all true. Um, and I know that I know that if I were in Andy's position, I'd be feeling the same way. I'd be feeling just as frustrated. Um, and maybe I'd be dealing with it with less grace and support than Andy has given me. So um, when she tells me, you know, that like we've had long talks about this and she said, I really do want to stay together. I don't want to break up right now. Yeah. I don't want to break up. Um, but I'm, I really want my own space. Yeah. And I feel like if we had a little bit more space between us, it would make it easier for me to deal with your health and to support you in the way that you need. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, I hear that. And I, th there's definitely an element of having my own space that appeals to me. Yeah. Because uh, I've got this, I'm going to have this studio yeah. down the hall from Andy's yeah. One Plus Den. Yeah, right. In, <laughs> and, a, in a building with an elevator. Right, exactly. Huge, huge shift. Yeah, so my entire life is going to be all in one room. Yes. And it's going to be so much easier for me to like make videos and game stream. I'm going to be able to stream from a couch again instead of from an uncomfortable chair. If you're not familiar with game streaming, I play <laughs> Nintendo games online and people watch me and hang out with me. And it's yeah. very fun. Search for Jesse Mercury Gaming on YouTube and you can find me. Hey. Um, and I haven't been able to do much of it in the last couple of years because I've been having a hard time sitting up for that long. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, sitting up in this rolling chair... I can only do it for like an hour or two. I used to game stream for like five or six hours at a time mm -hmm. because I was having so much fun. Um, but my body just isn't capable of doing that anymore. Yeah. But if I'm in a more comfortable position, if I'm not walking up and down the stairs all the time to do everything, if my hangout space is in the same room as my creative space, I might be able to do a lot more. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to get this podcast out for years. Yeah. Like I have been trying to do this for years. I started recording other people talking about their major pains years ago. Yeah. Like the first recording I did with Lauren, which is going to be the next episode, um, I'll have to look up when I recorded that. But I think it was like two years ago, <laughs> at least a year, maybe a year and a half, yeah. maybe even two years. Um, and I'm just like, it's just so hard for me to get anything done. And a big part of it was so much easier when I was living in a studio before, right. you know, when we first met, when Andy and I first met, I was living in a studio. Everything was in one space. I didn't have stairs to climb mm -hmm. unless I wanted to take the stairs because I was having a good day. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really miss that. Yeah. You know, I, I've come to really dread going up and down the stairs. Like there's days where it's no big deal and I can hop up and down, but there's days where I'll stand at the bottom of the staircase and I'll look up towards the top and I'll be like, oh, here we go. Ugh. And every step is agonizing. Yeah. And I'm just like dragging my right foot that's just like useless. And it's horrible. Right. Um, and when we first moved in here, I knew that that, you know, I knew that I was having some problem getting around, mm -hmm. but I thought that going up and down stairs would help keep me strong. Right. And I think it's done the opposite. Yeah. So, um, but so, there would have been no way to know that. Right. And totally. I think another thing just that I want to voice is that 
This has been a long journey. This has been a really long journey. And I've been on part of it, not all of it, but I've been on a pretty significant chunk of it. And it's easy to get in your head of, I wish I had known this sooner, or I wish I had done it this way, or what if I'm not doing it right, because maybe I should be investigating it this way. Or, And I just want to say that there is no clear path here. There is no yeah. one right way to do it. And you can only get to where you're going in the direction you're headed in the way that you're going there. And there is no way we could have known that the steps would have been worse rather than better unless we moved here. And there is no way right. to know that the naturopath we spoke about who did the muscle testing wasn't the answer until we tried, until we tried it, it, you know? Yeah. And that's the thing. The, the feelings of regret um, along the way, you know, I I think the only regret would be to give up and to not be trying to yeah. find answers. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, and every step has led to the next step. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so yeah, I mean, I definitely freaked out about us no longer living together. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really excited. Yeah. You know, and you're yeah. going to be right down the hall. Exactly. We're going to spend the night in each other's places all the time. Yes. We're still going to be together. We're still in love. Yes. And we've had long discussions about the fact that even if we were to break up, we would still love each other and support each other. And, you know, if we, like, there's this thing hanging over us of like, I don't, I don't know if I'm declining mm-hmm. in a, like, <laughs> the disease that we thought I had last week, Wilson's disease, that thing with the copper buildup, yeah. if that's not diagnosed by the time you're 40, it can become fatal. Mm-hmm. So last week, I thought maybe I was dying, yeah. you know, yeah. and then found out that I didn't have that disease. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we don't know. I mean, I, you know, I might have something that, you know, like flares up on and off throughout your life, but then becomes like debilitating. Like I might, I might be past. The point of being able to play shows and play music live and, and, you know, go on jogs and go on bike rides and play racquetball, you know, I haven't been able to do any of those things in years. And I feel like I'm losing myself in a way. It's mm-hmm. like the things about myself that used to define me was like the music that I would play and the way that I would perform. And I just love performing so much. And, and because I can't plan, I can't perform anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I can record videos and I do that. Um, Last music video I made took me over a year to make. Yeah. Because just waiting for the days where I was feeling good enough to dance a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, when I was younger, I just felt like I was put on earth to make things and to be a, a superstar, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I was going to be like this pop star, mm-hmm. the sci-fi synth pop star. Yeah. And now I just want to be able to go for a walk and have it not hurt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, now I just want to be able to say, yes, I can start a family. Like, I just want to... The things that I took for granted, I want those back. Yeah. Um, But I'm also learning how to live at peace with not knowing if I can have them. Right. And for me, the answer to that is just live in the moment. Right. You know, if I can't do this anymore, what can I do? I can't play on stage anymore. Well, I can still make videos. Mm-hmm. And, like, if I if I can't sing because my my sinuses are all messed up i can you know still make this sci-fi comedy web series that i just pulled out of my butt and i really (laughs) and it was like i never would have made that show you know yeah i mean if it weren't for my health i never would have moved to seattle Mm -hmm. i never would have met you Mm -hmm. i never would have um like played in mugatu which was the most joyous musical experience of my life yeah um 
so much that I never would have experienced. And it's terrifying to be 36 and, you know, to have been infirm for four years mm. and not know if, if it's over, you know, right. like, am I going to ever be healthy again? I don't know. We really, I mean, it's just as you said, you know, it could be a type of thing where, you know, it's on and off for years and then it just starts a very serious decline. It could also be something that we go down the road with this hematologist and they go, oh my God, it's this. Yeah. You need this treatment for six months and then you'll start then to improve. Fine. Yeah. And it's like to live in that uncertainty um, all the time is a real skill that is hard to develop. And uh, it's hard as an individual for you, I'm sure. And then it's hard for us as a couple. Absolutely. And there are the layers of both of those things that that oscillate all the time. And just as your partner, there's the me that's in a relationship with you <laughs> that's experiencing this with you. And it affects my life. And then there's also the me that is someone in your life who cares about you and loves you and is able to to zoom out and see it affecting you as an individual outside of it affecting us. Yeah. And it's a really interesting thing to negotiate those feelings um, and not to just desperately want some form of answer. Yeah. Um, for both sides of myself. Um, Absolutely. And... Something I'm learning from you all the time is how to be present, how to live in uncertainty because life is uncertainty. Absolutely. And how to make the most of what obstacles you have. And there are days where we're not always successfully doing all those things. There are days where it just like feels like you're running into a brick wall over and over again. Um, but there are days where honestly, we enjoy something as simple as going and walking and getting a coffee in a way no one else could understand <laughs> yeah. how that could possibly be so joyful. Yeah. But but for us, the simplest thing is like a huge deal. And it feels so good because for you, a day where your pain is at a three, where you're in pain all day, but it's a three is a good day, oh, you yeah. know? And so your scale really shifts. And in some ways, it really makes you appreciate life in a really particular way. Yeah. And I mean, we may explode if you ever actually get fully healthy because- I don't even know who I'd be. I know. And that's another thing we've talked about is that yeah. how could we possibly commit to a life together, not just because we don't know if you're going to get worse, but we don't know what it's like to be together right. when you're better. That's kind of what- I've been waiting for, well, that's what I was waiting for for years. It's yeah. like, well, I wonder what it's like to date Andy when I'm well. <laughs> and then just in the last year, we're like, what if I don't get better? It had right. never even occurred to me right. because all of my flare-ups had been temporary. Right. Um, and in the past, it's like, get away from mold and rest. And then my body builds back up. Yeah. But this, this last flare-up has been the longest and the worst of my life. There's been no mold exposure that we know of. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why I flared up that we know of. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's like, well, what if, what if it doesn't end? You yeah. know, like, what if this flare-up is now the state that my body's in? Yeah. It never even occurred to me to think that way until within the last year. I know. And like starting to, like getting my first cane was like mental gymnastics. Yeah. It's like, man, it hurts so much to walk. Um, and like people who are in pain when they walk use canes. Right. Well, maybe someday. Yeah. Like right. it just didn't even occur to me that I would need a cane. Right. But then, uh. Your dad has a collection of canes yeah. because his dad uh, 
was a cane walker. Yeah. And I borrowed one and tried it. It was like, holy shit. <laughs> this helps so much. Yeah. And it, it you know, completely changed my life. The, like the, the distance that I was able to walk doubled, mm-hmm. um, even though it was still really painful. And then the amount of times that I would fall down went way down. Because yeah. like, when I start to fall, I lean on the cane. Yep. Instead of just like leaning on the ground as I hit it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that's got me thinking now about like, well, if I get a wheelchair for the really bad days, it doesn't mean that I'm in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even mean that I'm in a wheelchair, um, like all of the time right now. It just means that I use, I need this tool mm-hmm. to get around on a day where my legs aren't working. Yeah. Um, so yeah, learning, learning how to, how to listen to myself, to listen to my body and to provide my body what it's asking for. Mm-hmm is so much harder than it seems, mm-hmm. especially when it is um, involving some sort of disability, you know, because I don't know what it is. Like if someone told me, uh, like you have MS and sometimes you need to use a wheelchair, I'd be like, great, let's get a wheelchair. Right. But just to be like, okay, my legs aren't working all the time. In the back of my mind thinking, well, if I had a wheelchair, I might be able to get around. But like actually speaking it out loud is so loaded. Mm-hmm. And I brought it up to my parents for the first time and my, you know, my mom did not, did not like the idea. Yeah. And her thought was like, if you get into a wheelchair, you'll never get out of it. And I think that fear had kept me from wanting to try, but, but I'm looking at it differently now. It's like, um, if that, if getting a wheelchair allows me to do something on a day where I otherwise couldn't, it's absolutely worth it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, uh, one of the buildings I worked at, there was a woman who was in a wheelchair who lived at the building. Um, and she had had use of her legs when she was younger and then lost the use of her legs. And it was like the hardest thing ever, you know, but she was thriving, you know, she got through it. She got through the deep depression that happened when she lost the use of her legs and found things that made her joyful and was living her life. And yes, she was struggling a lot, you know, and like, that's not something that's that you just get over and get used to. It's something that you struggle with, but she was, but there's always like life past these things. Mm -hmm. That's like the biggest lesson that I've learned is that, you know, no matter how your life is changed, no matter what happens to you, there is still a best way to deal with it. And as long as you're making those choices to try to deal with it the best way you can, there's still joy to be found. Mm -hmm. And it might be harder to get there, but when you find it, it's going to feel incredible. Yeah. And it might be further and further between, but but you'll never get there if you stop trying. Yeah. So it's really changed my perspective on life. Mm-hmm. And, in, you know, before this flare-up, when I mostly recovered from that earlier flare-up, I was, you know, 80% health, living a good life here in Seattle. I used to feel lucky that I had gotten sick mm-hmm. because I felt like it made me a more empathetic, compassionate person. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I would absolutely trade it now. Like now having <laughs> this new flare up where it's like, okay, now I'm four years deep. Having another flare up, like my, the first one was like a year long. Yeah. Um, the first bad one when in my like mid twenties and I had nightmares about it coming back. And if you told me then that I was going to have it again, but four times longer and maybe even more than that, I I would have like never slept again. I would have had so many nightmares about it. Mm-hmm. Like, it this I'm li- I'm inside of what was my worst nightmare. Yeah. And I've still found ways to thrive inside of it. You yeah. know, what I started game streaming and built this whole community and um you know, I was able to do it regularly for a while 
and it was wonderful and it was so amazing and i really you know i feel like i've lost that because i got worse inside of the flare-up like after that airplane ride right um and I'm now trying again. I'm like, I really want to build this up again because I miss it so much. And like the nature of content creation and YouTube and all that stuff makes that so hard. Mm -hmm. It's like if you lose your consistency and momentum, YouTube puts you in the algorithm jail. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that's where this podcast is coming from. It's like this desire to make the best of the, of the situation. Yeah. And if what I've experienced can help anyone out there, then it will make me feel better. And if making this show... And sharing other people's stories, um, putting together a collection of weird or pain, weird things or painful things or things that people usually don't speak about. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many people out there that are experiencing those things that have no one to talk to, nowhere to turn, no doctors that understand, yeah. no new ideas to try. And they're wondering, should I go to this naturopath? Should I go to the University of Washington? Um, and I'm telling you right now, the answer, University of Washington. Uh, <laughs> feel free to try a naturopath. I mean, the, there's so many things to look out for, though. Like, we've, I've tried acupuncture a couple of times. Um, I went to an herbalist. I brewed up Chinese herbs to try that. And uh, that made me feel worse. Yeah. And it was that same thing with the herbalist. He's like, well, sometimes you have to get worse before you get better. Right. So I tried it again, and I got worse again. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, No. I'm done with this, yeah. you know? I'm not putting things in my body that make me feel worse anymore. Right. I already feel so bad. Yeah. And any doctor who's telling me, or naturopath or acupuncturist or herbalist or anything who's telling me that I have to feel worse to feel better, I no longer am going to believe that yeah. because I've, I've been through that for years. Yeah. So I'm done with that. Yeah. And everyone is different. I mean, I, I'm dealing Absolutely. with my own health issues. And for yeah. me, I found an acupuncturist who is been hugely helpful absolutely and i want to try that yeah i'm, well, I'm, I'm gonna go try it yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone is different every practitioner is different exactly absolutely yeah so yeah. you know also just really listening to your instincts you are your best doctor meaning mm. you are your you are the best source for knowing if something is working for you yeah and it doesn't mean it's not going to be hard because i think i think deciphering when something is hard because you are working towards getting better and it's challenging your body in a way that's productive versus when it's just making you feel like crap. That yeah. is something only you can know. Right. Like uh, if I need to go on some sort of drug that like the, this whole um, Wilson's disease thing that happened last week, sure. the drug for that makes your neurological symptoms worse before you start to get better. Sure. But, it, but I would trust a science based approach that told me that. Right. Um, versus a practitioner who tells me this is going to make you feel better and then it makes me feel worse and they say, oh yeah, that's fine. That's good. That's intentional. <laughs> like, I don't trust that anymore. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's no black and white. Um, you're not only your best doctor, you're also your own best advocate. Yes. And you have to fight for yourself and you can't ever give up on yourself. Mm -hmm. And like, I've always had this thing inside of me that told me that there, there was something to be found, you yeah. know? And even when all these doctors were telling me, well, we're going to send you the psychologist because I don't think there's anything to find here. Mm -hmm. I always knew that that was wrong. Yeah. You know, I always felt deep down that there was something that needed to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And now we're at the point where I've been going through it long enough and been through enough tests and finally found some weird stuff on the tests that, that my doctors now believe that. Mm -hmm. And that took a decade. Mm -hmm. It took a decade of me going to doctors and telling them something was wrong for, for finally doctors to believe me. Mm -hmm. um consistently took a decade yeah um 
And that sucks, you know? Yeah. That's our healthcare system. And I'm not the only one. There's so many people out there like that. Yep. And my, my sincere hope is that this podcast will put together a collection of stories because uh, f- everybody is different. Um, your body is different than my body. Your, your journey is going to be different than mine. But if my journey can help you shorten your journey <laughs> so that it's not a decade before you're taken seriously, um, maybe it's like six months or a year or something like that, that will feel incredible for me. Mm-hmm. If I don't want that time to have been to, to not bear fruit, you know, and there's like, here's a huge tip. If you have bad flare ups, but they're inconsistent, get a video and take that video to the doctor. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that until this year. And it made a huge difference yeah. to show my doctor my muscle spasms mm-hmm. and me on a bad day trying to speak when my mouth isn't working right. Mm-hmm. To, to have a video in my pocket on my phone that I could show to the doctor made a huge difference. Right. Because when, when I go into the doctor and I'm talking normally like I am right now, and I say, yeah, and sometimes I can't talk normally. They're like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, well, I'm walking normally today, but sometimes my right leg doesn't work. They're like, okay. Yeah. But if you show them a video, it becomes real. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to hear from you, the listener. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much energy I have to put into this show, but I'm going to put in as much as I can. Yep. Um, I would love to have this show be something that continues. Yes. Um, but I'm going to make as many episodes as I feel like I need to make. If I'm not hearing from an audience, then I'm just going to say, that's great. I've made the show. It's done. It's out there. Yep. But if I'm hearing from an audience, if this is building and growing, and if people are reaching out to me and saying, hey, I want to share my story... And it's something that can um, build up some energy on its own. So I don't have to pour myself into it. If it's something that can kind of grow, I'm not going anywhere yep. um, unless my body takes me out. <laughs> so so th- that's my intention for this show. Yeah. And I do want to hear from you. I set up an email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. Um, write to me. Tell me your story. If you want to be on the show, let me know. We're now living in COVID times where I have to do a lot of these recordings remotely anyway. So mm-hmm. I can talk to anyone in the world at this point. And I, I'm really excited about trying this as a project. And I can't wait to see where it goes. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And Andy, one of these days, I'd like to sit down and talk about your health problems because they're very <laughs> different from mine, but, you know, very legitimate as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, would, I would love to be the interviewee next. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah, and we have a lot coming up on this show. I've recorded several episodes already, um, and we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff on this show. Like, I've already recorded an episode uh, with my friend Lauren, who has really intense chronic eczema, my friend Kara, who has seasonal affective disorder, and before my my Canadian chiropractor went back to Canada, can't blame him, <laughs> um, he came over right before COVID and, and talked about chiropractic care and what that can do. Because I used to have, we didn't even talk about it, but I used to have this hip pain that was so intense. Yeah. And a chiropractor fixed it. There's a lot of things we didn't even talk about. Jesse I know. Jesse's had some, yeah. some serious, serious health ups and downs. And uh, yeah, and it's connected to you in a weird way to a community of really interesting individuals that yeah. um, it's going to be really exciting to share their stories. Yes. And yeah, there's this thing that happens when you meet someone who has pain. Mm-hmm. Because when you live with pain and you meet someone who has pain, you can sense it. Yep. You just see it in their aura. And I think that it builds so much character. Mm -hmm. But there's this line where it's like the pain is so intense for so long that it starts to um, chip away at who you are. Mm -hmm. And like, that's where I feel like I'm at. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to find ways to bring in positive energy 
yep. to my life. And yep. I really hope that this show can can do that. And and bring in positive energy to to the lives of the listeners as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Andy. This was great. You did a great interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Um I don't have a sign off for this show yet. My 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 sci-fi podcast, I'd always say stay nerdy out there. But uh I gotta figure it out. Yeah. Major yeah. pain. <laughs> <laughs> Signing off. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.